Here we go, here we go. Here we go. Try not to love each other so much. Here we go, let's pray. Here we go, Almighty God, who set your Son over the works of your hands so even the wind and the sea obey him. We pray, give power to your word, that your kingdom may grow and increase in power and all creation may be delivered into the glorious liberty of being your children in heaven. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, good to see you. Thanks for coming back. It's been an interesting sort of week. Uh, I'm sure you're happy that the font is now butterscotch, the Pantone color of the year. If we're not a hip kind of, you don't think that's funny? Nervous? It's all going to be okay. Normal maintenance. Uh, so you have, to, you have to treat the font with chemicals back and forth. The chemicals react. It's all going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Life's <laughs> going to be good. And if you don't think it, then just look down into it and pretend you're at Yellowstone National Park and it's a geyser and that beautiful blue is coming up to greet you. It's all going to be fine, okay? It's going to take a little while because, you know, like everything else good in the spiritual life, it creeps. So that's good. Next is, uh, you saw there's a voters meeting two weeks from today at this time, 945. Normal, boring voters meeting, budget and ballots, to the two things, right? So um, two weeks from today, it's been in for two weeks. There's four weeks notice. We're giving you another two weeks. I'm saying it out loud, but the official notice is there. Voting for a new governing board and elders and um, budget for the next year. We're trying to get ahead of little things because things are busy. I recall that Ash Wednesday is the first Wednesday in Lent. I think that it is March 3rd, but I didn't look this morning. Anybody know March 3rd? 2nd? Dave Rickard, man, on top of that calendar. <laughs> Happy almost Septuagesima Sunday, Dave. Good job. So, uh, <laughs> ah, beautifully done. Okay. So, and we'll have the normal thing, you know, Ash Wednesday blowout, and then after that dinner. So, Y'all should come back to dinner. It's quite nice. If you haven't been to dinner here before on Wednesday, so dinner at 6, you know, catered in from someplace. Cool. There is, we are observing the uh, UNESCO ban on green jello with pretzels, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, this is a heritage site, and we can't allow any sort of... <laughs> then after that... Um, you know, because I'm crazy and this is a, you know, we're thinking about, thinking about only with the other boys, uh, a ret a, uh, another trip to Israel, perhaps in the fall. I know many of you gone. Last time it was fun. I mean, we had a full blast bus, but there are some people who didn't go. So maybe, you know, the last week of November, maybe next spring, maybe if things stay calm, maybe, maybe. But if... I'm only counting noses, so if any of you are, I'm just trying to figure out whether it's, I, when I sign on the dotted line, I say, you know, we'll all appear and give you money. So that's always a, a you know, tense moment for me. Uh, but if you are interested or you have some suspicion that you might want to go, uh, let me know, okay? Just because I'm just trying to figure out if we should do it or not. Nothing is, nothing is kind of done yet. And then, uh, best line of the week. So the, bishop, the archbishop was here last week, you remember, right? I mean, a beautiful man. I mean, a beautiful man. But one of the interesting things about you is you give him such great respect. And this can happen when we have, this has happened with Kleinig, it's happened with Nagel, it's happened with many people who are fabulous. So the archbishop comes out in his mitre and he stands 
out there and very few of you are greeting him, which is, you know, I know it's your great respect and he's worked hard and, you know, but also he's an archbishop. And what do you say to the archbishop, right? Uh, I can tell you what he said to us was, yes, of course we kiss the altar, but why don't we genuflect first? And I said, because it's sort of new, but we will. (laughs) But anyway, so he's standing there by himself and nobody's greeting. So I saw a little guy and I said, um, I want you to come and meet the archbishop. He's about five or six. And he came, I mean, it was great. He did what I asked him. He comes right up, he stands in front of the archbishop. And I said, stick out your hand, look him in the eye and say, good morning, archbishop. He said, good morning, archbishop. They shook hands, they talked a little bit. And then his mother said to him, he walked back to his mother and his mother said to him, what's going on there? And he looked up and he said, I was talking with Jesus and his boss. So there you go, right? You think wearing the hat doesn't matter? It matters, actually. (laughs) All right, so we're halfway through this, um, and, you know, we got to remember where we are. It's nice to hear you laugh. Uh, It's nice. There was more energy in the service this morning. You'd be surprised how much we can tell where you are by what happens in the liturgy, and the celebrant always speeds you up or slows you down or moves you around, you're maybe not even conscious of that. But there's always from the very first hymn, in fact, you eager beavers at 8.30, why did you stand up at 8.25? We're all looking at you like... We're trying to identify, I mean, we're going back through security tapes to identify the person who stood up first. It was a great prelude. And that's what people said. You know what what Peter said? Everybody stands for that. Whenever they hear, we praise you and acknowledge you. They stand up. So anyway, well played. But we're like, we'll be there in a moment. I mean, we still had people. So that was a little weird. Uh, But there's more energy in the room. You know, people are, you know, kind of relaxed a little bit. That's good. I mean, that's the sort of thing that should happen. So this very nice thing of, you know, you're healing up a little bit, and, and that's nice, and we, we need to kind of keep an eye on that because it's a difficult time. And so, you know, we, we've been talking about how to, how to you know, so I, how, to, how to handle this, and I'd said to you, you know, our goal is to keep the wound small and to um, give it good care, right? And so all of this is trying to keep the wound small and give it care. We know you're different. We know you think differently. You know, we know things could ratchet up as it gets closer to the elections. We don't know what the economy is going to do. Who knows about the next, you know, and plus everybody, um, you know, has their own ideas. And we, we coach the team we've got, not the team we want, right? And so we've got to just figure out how we're going to go, go forward. You know, you are who you are, as we are too, and we need, all need to figure it out. So how do we do that? And we've, we've been, we've gone through different things in the scripture about being together and encourage one another. So the last one was, you know, sharing suffering and also sharing strength. And these two things make a nice complementary uh, action in the church if only you'll let it, right? So, you know, are we going to make it? Yeah, we're going to make it. The question is what we look like on the other side. And one by one, I mean, you just have to look in the paper. Churches are blowing up and, you know, pastors are quitting and people are leaving. And, you know, we don't actually want that to happen. 
there's always a bright, you know, the sun comes up and there's, you know, Jesus on the other side. You're all going to be fine if you let yourselves be fine. It's all going to be fine. So how, how are we going to come through this? And I was curious, you know, I'm just kind, of, just kind of looking at this from, you know, how can we live in a world marked by fear and not be destroyed by it? Then I was thinking this week about it. How can we live in a world marked by fear and also not be hard-hearted? Because I know there are people who are being destroyed by this. I also know there are people who are, their hearts are turning to stone. And we can't be on either end of that equation. The answer is not completely giving up. The answer also isn't more force and destroy my enemies. Because of course, as you know, you have no enemies. Jesus has no enemies, so you don't either. So, you know, how will we survive? And one way that we'll survive is if we stick together as a community, recognizing what it means to be, you know, one body in Christ. So we were trying to move through that. And then I gave you a point number four, this bit from Dorothy Day about suffering with each other and being strong for one another. So sharing suffering and sharing strength. Compassio and comfortus, right? Comfortitudo, right? So this, this notion of we share suffering and then we also share strength. So when you're suffering, you let those who are strong come and help you. Uh, and when you're strong, your responsibility is to console those who suffer. And that is all over the scriptures, right? This notion of Jesus as warrior is uh, limited at, at very best. And the notion of the church as militant is you know, reserved even when it's at its strongest point. I know it appeals to us because we'd love to work things out by force. But of course, force is the way of the law. And of course, force does need to be used sometime. Uh, sometime even just for survival. You think of the archbishop uh, last week, right? You know, force does need to be used sometime, but our default is to love one another, to pray for our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who hate us, to lend and not spend, expect anything in return. And that just doesn't mean lend money. It means, you know, lend your life and not expect anything in return. Anybody can be hard-hearted. It takes no particular talent. Anybody can be forceful. Anybody can cause a disaster. Anybody can do that. That's easy. And it often runs in the way of original sin. That's human nature, which is not a compliment, by the way. I mean, let's face it. Be yourself is the worst advice you can give most people. (laughs) So uh, we might want to look at the other side. And so we're at point five. This is where we stopped. And I, I sort of give you this thing that says, mercy suffers with the broken and love rejoices with the repaired, right? So love, and you have the great text this morning from Paul and pastor preaching from it, love both share suffering and share strength. And if you share suffering and share strength, your community will flourish. If you share suffering, that is, if your sufferings are bound to the sufferings of Christ, But more importantly, if you understand that Christ joins you in your suffering, that Jesus loves you and Jesus never leaves you and Jesus never hurts you and Jesus joins you in your suffering, that makes your suffering tolerable. And when you are the one who is strong, who can look around the room and with empathy and humility help those people who are suffering, 
that builds a community, that keeps the wound small, that gives good care. And you yourself know little things like, you know, courtesy or laughter or, you know, a kiss and a hug or the understanding that those people who are with me are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This goes so, so long. So I'm going to give you a couple of stories to try to suggest this is the way of Jesus. And the very first one is this story from Luke 7 of the, of the, the widow at Nain. It's not read much, and yet it's this beautiful, simple story of Jesus being extraordinarily empathetic, of sharing in the suffering of another person, and bringing his messianic strength and changing the world. So look at this. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went, went with him. We're at Luke 7, Jesus is still popular, right? He hasn't lost the crowds yet, so he's, he's kind of the shiny new object, and everybody's thinking this is just fabulous. And he drew near to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died, so this is important that it's a man, so he's an older person, a man who had died was being carried out, and now, right, and the text is interesting, the only begotten son of his mother. That's what the, the word is, only begotten. It kind of rings some bells for you. So he's older. The mother is going to be an older widow. She's going to be unprotected or exposed because there's not this um, automatic safety net to care for her. So basically, she relies on her son, and now her son has died. She doesn't have a husband, so they carry him out. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This is a wound, and what do we do? What do we do when we're wounded? And when the Lord saw her, and then here's the, trans here's the translation, he had compasio, he had compassion on her, right? When he saw her, he shared her suffering. And he says to her then, do not weep. And you get this common word, you know, this splachna word, which you see over and over again, which is uh, to feel compassion or to have sympathy. But it's, it's interesting, um, in the text it says he has, uh, well, we'll get to it in the, in the next bit, but basically, I wonder if you could understand do not weep as do not despair. It's not the end of the road. Do not despair. There's more, or there's no need to be hopeless. And we've talked in the past about how hope welcomes the future, right? So she comes out, and she has no future. She's the widow with no son in a small town with no one to care for her. Jesus says to her, you can still welcome the future. You can still be hopeful. So at one time, Jesus is suffering with her. The Latin translation here uh, in, the, in the Latin Bible is misericordia, which you're all used to from people who take money from you and give you a lollipop in return, right? But of course, the icon is where you see Jesus' open, beating, bleeding heart, depending on which one. It's often an open heart, a wounded heart, a bleeding heart. But Jesus is very much alive as he looks at you with his misericordia, with his his heart that is compassionate for you. And for you too, you're meant to see that Jesus' mercy is about to flow out and flood the landscape. And when he does that, everything changes. Of course, what you're supposed to understand from this story is that Jesus sees you suffering as well. 
So you know, this is, you, you know all this stuff, but I'm just going to say it out loud so at least you hear it again. You're never alone. You're never unloved because you're baptized. He puts his name on you. He adopts you. You belong to him. You're never alone. You're never unloved. A Christian can't say that and remain an honest man. Jesus loves you. Jesus sticks with you. Jesus never hurts you. Never hurts you in the sense that he won't destroy you or abandon you or let you go. Sometimes he tunes you up like the font. But it's normal maintenance. So, uh, man, you're a hard crowd. I'm just hoping that thing goes dark by next week. I, I, gotta, I just hope it goes dark. Whew. You know, it was kind of butterscotchy when we bought it. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to try a range of things here, but it's going to be all right for you. Then Jesus come up, came up and he touched, so the gospel is touch. He touches you on the ear with his words, or he touches you on your tongue with his Eucharist, or he touches you on your skin with your baptism, or if you're dead, he'll touch your casket. So he came up and he touched the bier, and the bear stood still, and he said, young man, this is a resurrection. That's the word that's used, right? So rise, of course, is to get up, but it's actually the word that's used for him in his resurrection. So hey, this is a resurrection. This is going to be great. Young man, I say to you, come back to life, right? And the dead man sat up and began to speak, proof that he's alive. And Jesus, this great gospel word, gave him back to his mother. Makes the wound smaller and consoles. So Jesus then, in this case, shows both ends of what we're trying to do. He has this great compassion. So he's ready to intervene. And he gives all that he has, forgiveness, life, salvation, resurrection. He gives all that he has to this young man, this young man and then again to his mother. And now she has hope. Fear sees them all. But now you got to just like... Let this be a little bit more robust than, you know, a horror movie, right? The kind of stuff you're watching on Netflix. Um, it's another conversation, but not now. Um, fear involves, of course, a sense of the holy, but not toward their destruction. Of course, They recognize it, but they don't flee. They recognize it, and they praise it. They recognize it, and they welcome the gift, right? So, of course, it's awe. Holiness, fear, right? Respect, reverence. The guy's got a big hat. Pay attention. He's the boss. That's how they feel about Jesus. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God, and this is great, God has visited his people. You're not alone. God is visiting. Right? You're not alone. The archbishop is here. You're not alone. The gospel's here. You're not, here. The, you're not alone. The body and blood is here. You're not alone. God is visiting. He's visiting to make things better. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding countryside. So in this one story, you get um, both bits. You still good? Now the great nervousness would be is if you thought that story was only about Jesus and not about you because you are the body of Christ, because you're incorporated with Jesus, because he's adopted you as his little brother or sister, because you have the same father, because you're part of the church, because you just had his body and blood. And when you have his body and blood with other people who have body and blood, you're the same body and the same blood, 
right? There's a, there's a dozen ways you can talk about this, but this story is not just about Jesus. This story is also about you. And if you need a text for that, you know, it's easy. Colossians 3 is an easy one. This is, for whatever reason, this is the first text I ever had to write a sermon on. This is the first text all first-year seminarians when I was in seminary had to write their first sermon on, which is a difficult text because you you're not smart enough to even get close to this text when you're a first-year. But, you know, here it is. Put on, right? Dress up. You know, get dressed. Welcome as God's, now there's the gospel bit, chosen ones. So after you're chosen, you can begin to choose, right? You can't put on things by yourself. Once you're chosen, as a confession say, you get a new will, and you can choose things you never could even see before. Now you can see them, now you can choose them. So choose to act like who you are. Choose to be the body of Christ. Choose to be a Christian. Choose to share strength and share compassion. Choose to live as Jesus lived in misericordia. Choose to... Grow up in the faith, milk to meat. Choose, as God's chosen ones, and this is the great part, holy and beloved. That's what happens to you when you were baptized. You were made holy and you were marked as a beloved child of God. And the very first thing that it says, choose um, compassion, compassionate hearts, right? So... um, Again, the same word, the splachna word. So your insides come out. And they come out in a way that they embrace other people. This is how we talk about empathy. This is how we talk about love. It's also how we talk about service. It's how we talk about generosity. That you can see the needs of others. That you are compassionate. That you suffer with them. And that you are then willing to help. Now here's the problem especially if you live in Wheaton, Illinois. You all and I, on a daily basis, don't see enough people who are suffering. Now, we suffer, and we have troubles, and this has been a stressful time, and I get that. But, I mean, if anybody wants to just, you know, take a trip into Chicago today and drive around in a couple of neighborhoods, you meet some people who are really suffering. People out in the cold today, people who don't have anything to eat, people whose kids don't have an Internet connection so they're not going to school at all. People who are in danger all the time. Every, every mother, when somebody gets shot in Chicago, says, why can't this stop? Why do my kids have to face this? And why do I have to be the one without a child? So then, the conclusion is that we need to, as a rhythm of life, be compassionate and generous. So you're going to get my tithing and alms speech right now. Alms for the poor, whether you see any poor or not, because I guarantee you the poor are out there. I guarantee you the archbishop's house is 15 degrees colder than his. He told you the story about when the KGB came to visit him, right? He only opened the door because he didn't want all the heat to go out. <laughs> he told us about his first apartment when he was married, 100 square meters or feet. What did he tell us? I want to say meters, but feet wouldn't be impossible. Anyway, he had one appliance, an oven, as he said to us clearly, not a stove, that was used to heat food, not really cook it, and warm the apartment, not really heat it. And then, you know, you're living in Latvia in the winter, and he said, 
and everything else is outside, the water and the toilet. He's not that old a guy, right? He's 65. So that was the first 20 or 30 years of his life. Hey, people are suffering right now. Just because we don't see them doesn't mean they aren't suffering, which means you and I, who also suffer in our own ways, but you and I, who are also well provided for, you and I are meant to live this rhythm of the Christian life, Christ in Scripture and prayer and the Eucharist and tithing and almsgiving and thorough mercy, compassion and strength, as a good witness to the church, whether you see it or not. Because that's who we are and that's what we do. That's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus does. And it's story after story after story. And then when somebody like St. Paul sees it, he says to you, come on, this is who we are. You know the stories, right? So, I mean, here it is. You should put this on as your presupposition for engaging the world. This is your face to the world. I'm just at the end of... uh, Number six, this is the face we put on toward the world. Of all the ways that the church, that the world sees the church, what they should see in us is compassion. Right? That's not what they often see. But what they should see, if they see Jesus in us, if they look into our face and see the face of Jesus, if they look into the face of Jesus and see the face of the Father, what they should see is compassion. That's what they should see. Of course, they see all kinds of other things. But we're frankly kind of good at the other things, right? We need to get better and better always at this because this is the hard part because it keeps us from looking at ourselves. And it's hard not to focus on ourselves, especially when we're in trouble, especially when we're wounded. It's very difficult to be compassionate and generous when we ourselves are under the press. Okay, we've had our couple years of being under the press. Let's go, right? The lines are drawn. We know what we face. Let's get together. Let's go. Life needs to come back to normal, which is why, and you know, I can have the whole thing about it. it'll never be normal or what's the new normal, blah, blah, blah. I, Yeah, okay. Over coffee, I'll buy. But what we do need to do is be back between the altar and the font on the road to Emmaus and get our work done. We need to get our work done among us, but also our work done for other people who frankly are suffering, suffering terribly in many cases. So we bear with one another. I turned the page, right? We bear with one another. This is the strength of endurance. And we forgive each other. And above all these, put on love, which is, of course, the first virtue and the mother of all other virtues. And then this great line, verse 14, which binds, so which loops, holds together, pulls tight, Everything imperfect. And it's so interesting that it's translated harmony here, which is just such a great. It's from the word telos, which means your end, or you hit what you're aiming at, or you finish a race, or you get to your goal, right? Your ultimate telos is when you die and go to heaven. But here already it talks about the harmony of people all agreeing on where they're going and working toward it, and it works. Holy cow, it works. You actually go to a church where it works, where people aren't always arguing all the time or pointing fingers. Like those conversations are off the table. Yeah, of course that stuff can get to us, but that's not what's important right now. What's important is that we live together as one body and that we serve others who don't know Christ. How do we do that? One way we do that is when we're wounded, we stick together, and when we're strong, we bump and nudge the whole thing forward. 
it's so obvious, but it's not where our focus often is in the church. You know, I can't control anybody else, but on these two square blocks, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. So, um, you know, put on love and, and let's keep going. I give you the next one from verse 7. Very same. So it's so interesting, like all these texts are the same, right? The Nain text and the Colossians text and then the Thessalonians text. Um, and this is a hard text because it has death in the middle. But what I want you to think about is that the death in the middle is just the example. It could be another example, right? But look at the lead up and the follow. And then he kind of breaks away and says, of course, this is what you do in these difficult times when somebody dies. But look at this. Finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you. So that's what I'm doing to you. I'm asking you and urging you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, this is how you ought to walk to please God. Which, of course, is the only thing that matters. Just as you're doing, so this is kind of nice, whenever Paul writes to a congregation that works, you're kind of like, yeah, you felt the same way in the Philippians. Yeah, this is good. That you do so more and more, not stasis, more and more and more and more, closer and closer and closer and closer, better and better and better and better, rhythm of the Christian life. Your life gets better, everybody else's life gets better. Let's go. So, you know what instructions we gave you through our Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God for your sanctification. Or, I'm sorry, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So this is how you live once you've been forgiven. So you, this is easy, right? You know this. Justification is being forgiven. Sanctification is living forgiven. So he's given all the talk about being forgiven. And now he says, this is how we're going to live. Concerning brotherly love, I hardly need to write this. You're really good at it. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's so interesting how love always becomes the baseline for all the things we're talking about, for encouragement, for sharing suffering, for sharing strength, for being generous. Love is always the baseline. Augustine, love God and do what you will. Um, Luther, the Christian doesn't need the Ten Commandments, right? If you're a Christian, which means if you're steeped in love, for indeed, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And we urge you to do it, and there it is again, more and more. Now he takes a little bit of a pause, which I'm not going to do, when he, which is a common text that's always read at a funeral which, of course, is a place where our suffering is really intensified. Um, and so, in some ways, that's the easiest case for us because it's the point where we are... The need for compassion is most obvious and the need for strength is most clear. Okay. But look then, if you go, just keep going. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And we did encouraging kind of last time, but it's the same word these things kind of bundle together in harmony, right? As our telos. And that's the word that's um, used for the Holy Spirit. So, nine. The stakes are really high. The stakes are really high because the church is out of favor. The stakes are really high because the press is on us. The stakes are really high because inertia goes with original sin, which goes with being turned in on yourself, which be, goes with being selfish. The stakes are really high because this is not natural. 
Uh, and I kind of went back and forth with it to give you this next piece because um, it's from Rowan Williams, who's a very gentle man. But um, this is kind of an angry piece, especially for him. I thought, you know what? Um, occasionally, I don't know, maybe we should hear it. So the stakes are high, uh, but we need to get going. So this very first line, and I have to tell you, I, was, I paused uh, on the very first line, uh, I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I can explain that to people. Christ is killed every day by the injuries we cannot bear. I'm thinking this can be misunderstood in a dozen ways. But you know what? See if you can understand it at least this way, and then let's kind of go and see if it helps you. Christ is killed every day by the injuries, and maybe you can, I can, I can cannot can mean different things. I mean, it's beyond our can. That can be cannot. Or it can also be that we don't choose to do it. So think about it in this way. Christ is killed every day by the injuries we don't bear. Or Christ is killed every day by the injuries we choose not to bear. We just read a text that said, choose this, choose that, choose this, choose that, choose this, choose that. Choose to share people's suffering. Choose to be encouraging to other people. Right? Hear this text in that way. Christ is killed every day by the injuries we cannot bear. I know this is like, kind of above, this is hard-nosed theology, but you can do it. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and our first emotion, our first reaction is relief. And frankly, that's okay. To know that we're forgiven, to know that he carries our sorrows, it's good to know that, okay? Christ who lifts responsibility from us, Christ who suffers for us, Christ who takes away our burden and our misery, who stands between us and the world's dreadfulness. This is all good stuff. So, you know what? Even though this has a little bit of an edge to it, I would actually want to argue it is a good thing, right? Christ, who is between us and the squalor of our lives, as he was once thought to stand between us and the wrath of his Father. So Christ, who is a mediator in some sense. This is good, okay? Just take this as a, we know this and we embrace this. Christ the substitute, Christ the surrogate, Christ who saves us the trouble of being crucified, which in fact is true. God will forgive, that is his job. Christ will suffer, that is his justification. Hear it in this way. Okay, just, I know you could hear it in other ways, hear it in this way. But now, once justified, once a disciple, once among the apostles, once the church, how do you react to all the things that Jesus says to us? So try this. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You remember this Gethsemane, you know, uh, um, you know, Monday, Thursday. This is hard text. People are overestimating their debilities. Death is right outside the door. Jesus knows what's coming. The disciples are confused. They're going to deny him. They're going to flee. This is going to be a mess. So this very honest answer, right? Can you drink the cup I am to drink? Less passionate than James and John, or John, or more honest, we answer, no. No, Lord, your cup is yours alone. Far be it from us to presume to share it. Or if you will, sorry, no compasio here. Hey, I'm not with it. You get it done, and I'll just be kind of happy and carry on. By the grace of God, we know our limitations. I mean, you can see his tongue in his cheek there, right? 
And so this very disturbing sentence. And so Christ is killed every day by the injuries we refuse, by what we will not let ourselves feel and know, by the risks we refuse, by the involvement we refuse. Agape in the older translation bears all things. Look at that, compasio. It bears all things and bears them alone. Bears them with strength. Come fortitudo, right? Come passion, come fort. Like the apostles, we evade and refuse and deny and escape when the cross becomes a serious possibility. At least, at least if you can absorb enough of this to make a good confession. Terror of involvement, fear of failure, of hurting as well as being hurt, the dread of having our powerlessness nakedly spelled out for all, all of this is common coin in most of our lives. We do hate to fail. I hate to fail. I'll die before I'll fail. Christ bears what is unbearable, but we must first find it and know it to be unbearable. And then here's the key. And it does not stop being ours when it becomes his. Only thus can we translate our complicity in the death of Christ. So we admit this always, you know, my sins killed Jesus. Into a communion in the death of Christ. So how does complicity, this is my fault, turn to communion? Jesus suffers with me and I suffer with him. A baptism into the death of Christ, Romans 6. We say that. Christ dies, I die. Christ, you know, lies in the tomb, I lie in the tomb. Christ rises, I rise. Christ lives in glory, I live in glory. Christ walks in holiness, I walk in holiness. Christ lives eternally with the Father, I live eternally. We say this all the time. Fundamental. By not refusing, by not escaping, by forgetting our realism and our reasonableness, by letting the heart speak freely, by exposing ourselves, by making ourselves vulnerable. And here we shall find that there is no going back. No unraveling the thread, only holding to the foot of the cross, which we have discovered. What we shall feel, what we shall know, is determined by the needs of our neighbor. Once we have taken the costly first step of refusing to be reasonable, I could never do that. I could never tithe. I could never give alms. I could never volunteer. I could never help you know, poor people learn to read or have enough to wear. I could never do that. Once we have taken the costly first step of refusing to be reasonable, refusing to predict or calculate, refusing above all to make policies about our response to people. I could never give money to somebody on the street. They might spend it on alcohol. They could be a drug addict. They're not quite as nice as we are. They don't come to church. Jesus never gives us a sort of quiz, by the way. You can't find one story where he does because his heart is misericordia. The complete involvement of Jesus in our human torment draws us after. That's a disciple walking in the way. Draws us to imitation. Paul, imitate Christ as I, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Stirs us to be Christ for our neighbor to expose ourselves as he did, comfort and compassion. There we can see something like clarity, the radical depths of compassion and involvement. What it means to say that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What it costs God to redeem us by taking our pain into himself. So 
God takes our pain into himself, and then we take other people's pain into ourselves. Jesus is a sponge. You know, he wanders through Galilee, and he soaks up everything that's gone wrong. Jesus makes wrongs right. That is a definition of justification. And when you follow him, you become a sponge. You make wrongs right. First, of course, in forgiving other people with Jesus' forgiveness, but also sanctification, using all the gifts you've been given to do some good. Love does good. Come on. There we begin to understand that the pain of the world is of a seriousness that can be met only by and in the life of God. This, of course, is the exact problem of our world right now. Everybody has a solution, and all the solutions are human because God has been forgotten, and so it'll never be right. If you have bad presuppositions, you have bad conclusions. True for math, true for philosophy, true for religion, true for life. And that our discipleship, our involvement, is only possible because this life is made ours. Without it, here's our world. There is only despair. A despair which paralyzes, sorry, typo, action. So that's one half of the world right now. They're hunkered down, waiting for the world to go away, and dries up compassion. Those people who are a different political party, have a different idea about COVID, have a different skin color, live in a different place, do a different thing, I'm out. Right? It promises neither protection nor consolation. It's very interesting. But only grace, the free privilege of carrying the cross of Christ and being upheld in his arms through every darkness and torture. So the archbishop said, when the Nazis came to town, we took them as liberators because the communists were so bad. But not for long. But that is a brutal kind of thing that's happened in our lifetime that we cannot understand. And we shouldn't have to go to Latvia to understand it. Upheld in his arms through every darkness and torture so that the weight of the cross does not crush us. There it is. Jesus shares strength with us so we're not crushed, right? Christian life, Christian ministry is not a matter of calculation or realism. Risk is incalculable. Grace is incalculable. Christ is incalculable. He calls us to meet the absolute gratuity and unexpectedness of his measureless compassion. Oof, but this is harsh but he will not wipe the tears from our eyes until we have learned to weep. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. See you next week. Thanks.